overlooking Jerusalem, literally overlooking Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where he prayed. It was his favorite place to pray. The Mount of Olives is one of several peaks in a mountain range that rims the city on the eastern side. At 2,600 feet above sea level, it provides dramatic views down on the whole city of Jerusalem. To the west, he could see the lights of the temple shimmering in the night. To the east, just over the mountain ridge, the Judean wilderness offered a quick and easy escape, should he choose it. His ancestor, King David, had fled from Absalom along that same route. And within a few minutes' walk, he could crest the hill behind him and disappear into the wilderness. And he knew how to survive in the wilderness. His enemies would not find him until he wanted to be found. So the temptation to melt into the safety of the wilderness, it was strong. And there was another option, another temptation readily available to him that dark night in the garden. His followers, they would fight for him if he called them to do so. All Judea chafed under the rule of Rome. It was a tinderbox of rebellion waiting for a leader willing to be the spark inspiring them to rise up and fight. He even had the power to call down legions of angels to defend him. So to be sure... He had the power to act. No one could force his hand. But he knew it was not the Father's will for him either to fight or to flee. He knew the purpose for which he had been born was right there waiting. And it included suffering. Suffering like no person has ever suffered. His soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He fell on his face to the ground beside a gnarled olive tree and prayed like no one had ever prayed before. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And as he prayed, sweat fell from his brow in great drops of blood, like drops of blood, And he prayed again, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And yet a third time, he prayed. He prayed the same words. And then he stood with his face toward the temple, yielding his will to the Father. No one has experienced a dark night of the soul more distressing more threatening, more frightening than what Jesus went through in the garden that night when he was arrested. He was tempted like, he was tempted beyond anything we can imagine. And yet, he did not sin. He didn't turn away from the will of his father. He became our high priest that night when he went from Gethsemane to the cross And he offered himself as the perfect final sacrifice for our sins. And that's what Jesus is called in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Our high priest. 
Our text today is Hebrews 4, 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. I'm continuing this series of messages from the book of Hebrews. And the big theme today is Jesus, our high priest. And so let's go uh, to the text. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers, petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. (coughs) I'm not going to talk about Melchizedek today. I'm saving that because the writer of Hebrews is going to come back to that theme Uh, And so in a couple of weeks, we'll deal with what that's all about. But today, we want to talk, we want to focus on what it is that makes Jesus a better high priest. Hebrews is the only New Testament book, by the way, that refers to Jesus in that way as our high priest. And it does so 24 times. The author's original audience, some think, some New Testament scholars think, may have been Jewish priests who had actually served in the temple and had come to faith in Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, and professed that that faith. Now they think that because clearly the audience who first received this book, they're well versed in in what this is all about, the role of the high priest in the Jewish religion. They, They must have known all about that. The high priest essentially was the mediator between God and the people. But no longer was this community receiving this letter to look to a high priest in the temple made by human hands, but they were to look at another high priest, the true high priest who would come, who was Jesus the Lord. Now, what makes this Jesus a better high priest for all of us who will come to him? Well, I think three things, I mean, there's a number, there's more than three, but I want to focus on three today. So number one, his divinity. In verse 14, he's called the Son of God. On the Day of Atonement, only the high priest 
could enter into the Holy of Holies. It was a once a year kind of thing. And he entered the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of the sin offerings. And he covered the sins for himself, for his family, and then for his people. No high priest could be what Jesus could be. A truly perfect mediator who was fully God, who would stand before God without any sin of his own that needed to be atoned for. No other high priest could offer the perfect sacrifice once and for all for the sins of the people, his own blood. That's why when John the Baptist first meets him in the the Gospel of John, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. He's referring to Jesus who is not only high priest but also the sacrifice who brings uh, uh, that redemption for our own sins. So what makes him a better high priest? His divinity. He's fully God. Second, that means his perpetual presence before God. In verse 14, we have a high priest who's gone through the heavens. Well, that's a reference, a, a picture probably to the ascension of Christ after his resurrection 40 days later, he ascended into heaven before his disciples to be uh, in the presence of God. You see, the temple was really supposed to be a picture of, of heaven. And our high priest resides in the real holy of holies, in heaven, having already offered the one sacrifice fully acceptable to God. He remains before the throne of grace advocating for us. We like to ask people to pray for us, and that's a good thing, of course. We should be praying for each other all the time, but we must never forget the one who prays best, the one who prays exactly right, the one who prays all the time for you is in heaven before the Father, and his name is Jesus, our great high priest. Don't forget that. And third, and the one I want to focus most on today, the third thing that makes Jesus a better high priest is his humanity. It says in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus experienced every possible kind of temptation to which we are exposed. It doesn't really mean that. It means something far greater than that. It means something far deeper than that. It means that beneath All temptation is the unholy desire to be a God unto ourselves. Temptation is turning away from God to an idol. And most often, the idol is me, my desires, my unwillingness to say no to myself and yes to God. And in the garden, Jesus faced down the vile, self-serving essence of all temptation. He could have turned away. He could have went right over the peak, over into the wilderness, disappeared. They'd have never found him. He could have done that, but he didn't. He could have called his followers to fight, but he didn't. He could have called down angels to fight, but he didn't. There in the garden, he faced temptation like no one has ever faced. And he won. T.H. Robinson A Bible scholar, New Testament scholar, he writes, The very fact that he had powers we do not possess only added to the stress. The very richness of his human nature exposed him all the more fully to the assaults of temptation. F.F. Bruce, another great Bible scholar from the last century, he says, The fact that the cup 
was not removed qualifies him all the more to sympathize with his people. When they're faced with the mystery and trial of unanswered prayer, they know that their high priest was tested in the same way and did not seek an escape by supernatural means of any kind that we do not have at our disposal or their disposal. So, so yes, our high priest, Christ the Lord, he's able to sympathize. He's able to sympathize with you like no one else. He's able to sympathize with us when the lure of temptation creeps into our hearts. He knows the powerful draw of wanting to put ourselves first which means turning away from God. He knows the temptation that creeps in, the temptation of unbelief, when the answer to our prayer is my grace is sufficient for you. Our high priest knows what you're going through. He's able to help. Support groups can be a a great source of comfort, encouragement for those with a shared struggle. my wife is a licensed professional counselor, so she's led a number of different kinds of support groups. And, and they can be really helpful for those sharing in the struggle of alcoholism or recovering from cancer or from grief or PTSD. And part of the help comes from simply realizing I'm not alone. I'm not the only one in this struggle, in this battle. There are others. And so there's an encouragement that can come from, from that. Christ Jesus knows the deepest struggle of all and reaches to us with compassion and help to trust in Him. It does not mean we'll never struggle again, but it means we'll never struggle alone. Never. So, That brings us to our response to our high priest. There's two phrases here in this text that give us a very clear, two very clear ways to respond to Jesus, who is our great high priest. The first one is there in verse 14, hold on to the faith. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. This past week, one of our preschool teachers, we have a pretty good-sized preschool here in this church, about 140 kids or so, I guess, 25 or so teachers, and one of them was in the hospital. And so I went to visit her on Tuesday. And when I visited her, I learned she was in this really terrible place of waiting, just waiting to find out what was wrong, waiting for a diagnosis. And, and her sim- symptoms, well, they're pretty scary, pretty scary. And a number of tests had, had come up empty, and so the doctors are still searching, trying to figure out what's going on, what's, what's wrong. And that's not an easy place to be. But she has a strong faith. And she looked me in the eye and said, you know, Pastor Steve, at the beginning of this year, I prayed. I kind of went on a treasure hunt for a word. I'm like, what? 
a treasure hunt. For, that's what she called it. I asked God to give me one word from Scripture, one word that would be the theme for me for this whole year. And that word was hold. I'm like, hold? Well, that's what I'm preaching on Sunday. So I say, hey, I'm going to Hebrews, and it says to, to, to hold on, on to your, your faith. And that's what she was doing. In the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of wondering what's going to happen and what the diagnosis is going to be, she was clearly holding firmly to her faith, her faith in Christ, our great high priest. And I found that reassuring and comforting to me. And that's what we all must do in light of what Christ, our high priest, has already done on our behalf. We hold firmly to that faith. Raymond Brown, he writes, first century believers were urged to hold fast to such a faith. This is not merely an appeal for endurance, but an exhortation to fearless witness. Our testimony to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is never more effective, never more powerful than when we hold on to the faith and we profess it in the midst of crisis, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of disappointment. We never let go and we continue to profess that. And it honors God and it makes people sit up and pay attention to what we believe. Hold on to your faith. Continue to profess that faith in Christ the Lord, your high priest. And second, second response, chapter 4, verse 16, enter the presence of God with confidence. Specifically, or exactly, he says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The Greek word translated let us approach is proserkomai, and it means simply to come. But the interesting thing about it is the grammar because it's a present active subjunctive of proserkomai. So it's not just uh, enter the presence. It is, in the Greek text it comes through, in the English it really doesn't quite so well, but it really means to come and keep on coming. And that present active never stops. You keep coming. This is not a one and done kind of experience. but It's an ongoing lifestyle of coming to God in prayer and in worship. You know, the, last week I talked about that Sabbath rest and the importance of falling into that or patterning your life in that rhythm of worship every Sunday. It's so important to the health of our souls that we fall into that rhythm of not showing up once every couple of months, but showing up every week because we need that, that day of rest, that day of, 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 of refocusing on our God, of praise and worship. And we need that rhythm of daily prayer where we come before the Lord every day in that pattern and there's something powerful that can happen in that. And look, I, I'm not going to kid you. I, I pray pretty much every morning. 
And there are mornings when I'm writing in my prayer journal and I'm reading the scripture because I like to to mix in scripture with with my prayer and and my, my journaling. And there are mornings when I sense, feel, really pretty much hear the voice of God speak to me. And it's powerful and it moves me and I'm inspired. But not every morning. Not every time. Sometimes I read the scripture and I write and I don't necessarily feel anything. That doesn't mean God's not there. It means I just didn't feel anything. That's all. And it's the same with worship. You come every Sunday, right? And there are those Sundays when the worship, when we're singing and it moves my soul, moves my spirit, and I feel really in the presence of God. But not every Sunday. I'm sorry. Not every Sunday. Some Sundays I come and I sing the same way with the same openness and I don't really, you know, feel anything. Again, it doesn't mean God's not here. It doesn't mean the Spirit's not moving. You just didn't feel anything. I just didn't feel anything that particular day. Now here's the way it works. If you come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you make room for, you invite the presence of the living God to move in your own heart. If you don't show up, there's no chance of God moving. Same with your daily prayer and why that needs to be, become a, a, a rhythm, a routine. Because it opens your heart and mind to the Spirit of God moving in you. Are you going to feel something every day? No. But if you don't pray, you certainly won't. So the rhythm of that is so important for our lives, for the health of our souls. It's an ongoing lifestyle, coming to God in prayer and worship. N.T. Wright, the British uh, New Testament scholar I love, he says, we may and must come boldly, confidently, This isn't arrogance. Indeed, if we understand who Jesus is, real arrogance would be to refuse to accept his offer of standing before the Father on our behalf, to imagine that we had to bypass him and try to do it all by ourselves. No, no. You need a mediator between you and God. You need one. You can't get there on your own. No matter how many good deeds you do, no matter how much you give, no matter how well you keep the rules, you need a mediator. And thank God Almighty, he provided one. And his name is Christ the Lord, and he's your high priest. So you go to the throne of grace through your high priest, who is Christ the Lord. Raymond Brown takes it another, to another level, I suppose. He says, to be prayerless is to be guilty of the worst form of practical atheism. We're saying that we believe in God, but we we can do without Him. To neglect the place of prayer is to rob ourselves of immense and timely resources. For the Christian, the throne of grace is the place of help. Why on earth would we not go there every day? Uh, My wife Sandy and I, uh, we've been watching The Crown on Netflix. Anybody else watching The Crown? You like The Crown? If you haven't seen The Crown, it's it's pretty good. It's very well done. 
The acting is superb. The stories are intriguing. Uh, I can relate to it because I think the queen's probably not much older than me. It's about Queen Elizabeth II, and, and you, yeah, it's just really well, well done. And we were watching this last week, and there's three seasons that are out there, and we're in the middle of season two, I think. And this was an episode from season two, and it's, it's when the queen uh, makes a public speech and uh, at a, uh, a factory of some kind. I don't remember what kind of factory it was, but they had a little crowd before. And, and so she's addressing what she would refer to as commoners, you know, just the common, regular workers, just average people. And it was not a very good speech. Uh, her speechwriters really messed, messed that up. And as she gave the speech, it showed different people responding. I can't believe she said that and so forth. Because the speech was belittling. It was patronizing, patronizing to, to common people. It served to separate the royal family even further from the common people, her subjects. Now, I mean, she's already separated pretty far. I mean, she lives in a palace. Buckingham Palace, have you seen it? On TV, anyway. And there's walls around it. There's gates. There's a moat with alligators in it. Well, there's no moat, but it might as well be. I mean, she separates. She lives in this place. Nobody ever sees the queen. The queen doesn't hang out at Walmart. or I don't know if they have those in London, but wherever that kind of place would be, she's not there. She's already separated. And then this speech served to emphasize the separation between royalty and the royal family and all you regular commoners. Well, her advisors sat down with her, and they realized what had happened and that the speech was terrible. And, and so uh, one, of, one of the solutions was to pick a few commoners and bring them into Buckingham Palace every once in a while and expose the queen to them and them to the queen and, and, and so on. And it was really interesting to watch because here's what it looked like. You had 20 or 25 people who had been invited. I don't know if it was a lottery. I don't know how they picked them. But they were just regular people, and they line up at the gate in front of Buckingham Palace. And they're all checked, and they all show an ID, and they're lined up, and they walk into the palace, and they stand in a straight line, this big receiving line, like at a wedding or something. And then it shows the queen in another room watching kind of dreading the whole thing. And, and, and then she reluctantly makes her way down the receiving line, kind of pretending to care about plain working people, and they're all doing this. And, and it struck me, as I was watching that this week, and I had been thinking, of course, all week about this passage in Christ our High Priest, who is fully divine, fully human, how different is our God, our Savior, Christ the Lord? He left the greatest palace of all, not merely to meet us in a receiving line, but to live among us. He was born among the poorest people ever in Palestine. He shared in all the struggles of poverty. He shared in the struggles of temptation. He shared suffering. He truly became a commoner with us. 
and because He entered our world to demonstrate God's love for us, we can approach His throne of grace with confidence that we are welcomed and we are loved. Now the first time, the first time we approach the throne of grace, the throne of God, well that must be a confession, a humble confession. That's the only only way it works. It would go something like, Lord, I need you. Kind of like we sang. I need you every hour. We tend to be prideful people who don't want to think we need anybody's help. Just get out of my way. I don't need any help. I can hire you. That doesn't work when you come to God. I need you, Lord. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I'm not as good as some people think I am. I need you, Lord. I need your help. And that has to be coupled with this profession. Confession of I need you, forgive me, help me. Coupled with profession, I believe in you, Lord. I have faith in you. Every time we approach the throne of grace, we do so humbly confessing and then faithfully professing and every time we, become, we come before that throne of grace, we must pray as our high priest, Jesus, modeled for us. Your will be done. Can you pray that way? Can you kneel before the Lord God Almighty and pray? Lord, I don't want to take that cup and I wish I had that one and I need your help with this and that. But in the end, in the end, if you say, my grace is sufficient for you, I will say, your will be done. That is faith. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty and everlasting Father, we bow before you humbly, confessing it's true. We need you. We need your mercy because we are sinners. We need your help because we get confused and a little lost. We need your grace. We need your love. We need your presence because only you understand the depth of our hearts. We need you. Lord God, we believe. We believe in you. When we feel it, when we can get a sense of your voice in our souls, we believe. And when we don't feel anything at all, Lord God, help us to believe. I pray for the one who might be coming before you for the first time in a very, very long time. That confession would be authentic, humble, and filled with faith that you hear that you receive us into your presence and that you're eager to forgive and to love. I pray, Lord God Almighty, through our high priest, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Here's the blessing.
May you approach the throne of grace with faith and confidence in Christ, our high priest, and always hold firmly to the faith we profess. Amen.